Hey everyone, this is Kike with Psyche Podcast. I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. I sit down with my friend Elizabeth Schilling, who's been on the podcast before, and we discuss one of our favorite contemporary philosophers, Byung Chohan. We start out by exploring this recent interview that was conducted by El País magazine, where you really get a window opened into his unique life, his daily practices, his quirks and eccentricities. It's a great interview, and, and I think we have a lot of fun talking about Byung Chohan's life. We then jump into his wonderful book, The Philosophy of Zen Buddhism, where Han basically puts into conversation the religious tradition of Zen Buddhism with all these great Western philosophers and even some figures in different religious traditions like Meister Eckhart and Martin Buber. It's a great book. It's a great entry into Byung Chohan. If you're interested in both philosophy and religion, I think you should check it out. Please, if you get the time, share this interview, share this podcast episode with anyone in your life who might benefit from it. And wherever you listen to podcasts or if you watch it on YouTube, please feel free to leave me a positive rating and review if you enjoy and follow this podcast. Thank you so much again for listening. And as always, I hope that you will continue the conversation. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for, you know, being a guest on Psyche Podcast again. It's always wonderful to see you and I'm really anticipating a great conversation with you to discuss one of our favorite, I think, contemporary philosophers, Byung Chohan. Um, I know when I reached out, I asked if you would be open to talking about his book, The Philosophy of Zen Buddhism. But I'm also hoping that we kind of go maybe deep into the recent interview that he did with El País magazine, where he really reveals some interesting things about himself, I thought. Um, but before we do that, let, let me just ask you something personal, if that's okay. Yeah. yeah. I know, I know since, the, since the last time we talked, um, you know, school has started back up for you. And I saw on social media that you were teaching a course on world religions. Um, yeah, I'm doing world religions and world mythology. So it's my Ooh, first time for both of those classes and I love them so much. They're so fun. That's awesome. I think the question that I had as I was thinking about it was, what are some of the questions that like young people are coming to world religions classes? Like what, what are people asking about some of those great traditions nowadays? I'd, I'd be curious to hear about that. Yeah, I think they're just really interesting. You know, I mean, everyone comes to a world religions class with religions that they're more familiar with and less familiar with. So For sure. um, I think different people are interested, different students are interested in different religions because like one student um, was really interested in Judaism, for instance, because she's dating someone who identifies with that faith and she wants to know more about um, her partner. And then 
I just love kind of reading. Um, we have like discussion board posts. So they read something and then they write like a small essay because it's an online class. This one is for me. So, um, you know, it's just interesting to hear what they're surprised about. And they start making connections because we're reading about um, texts from about eight or nine different faiths or spiritualities. And so they start to like inevitably compare them. And I think, you know, they're just interested in the personal question, like what can they adopt from each spirituality and religion that can help them cope with like the human condition? Oh, I love that. Do, do you have like a certain approach that you bring to kind of that subject world religions? Is it more like comparative or is there some other way that you kind of frame it? Um, yeah, I do like to kind of direct them toward the personal. Like I, I always ask them, well, what out of this, like we have a textbook and then we have a reader so they can kind sure. of get the commentary and the overview. And then also like maybe the more canonical text. Then I always just ask like, ask like what jumps out at you, what compels you, what speaks to you and why. And then also just, you know, what confuses them. So I maybe can like add some clarity or their classmates can add some clarity. And I really just like to create a dialogue. And I think, um, you know, students are always, they learn more if they can relate it to themselves and they oh, can yeah. see how they personally agree with something or, you know, even, even asking them, you know, what do you find problematic? in this faith as well, you know? So I try to get them away from like idealizing too much, but then also okay. being too like unfairly critical and kind of finding like, I guess with Buddhism, like the middle way. Yeah. Oh, that's so well said. That must be really tough to balance the overly critical with the over idealistic. I know I can kind of seesaw between both of those like modes of being. So that's that's really interesting that that's one of the things that you feel like you have to navigate to working yeah. with young people. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with those, and I can relate to this personally, who have uh, maybe they grew up with a religion and they found it eventually like kind of problematic or toxic. And then I think it's easy for all of us really to kind of attach to maybe like if you come from a Christian monotheistic background where, you know, you were taught that God is authoritative and powerful and maybe gonna punish you if you took the wrong step. And then sure. you have something like Buddhism that you maybe find later in life in your adulthood. And it doesn't seem so judgmental and you're kind of coming to it with fresh eyes and also sort of this maybe even like naive hope that it can redeem and maybe replace something because it's really hard to come from a tradition for some people and then just kind of leave it and not have anything to replace it you know because religion can be even if it's problematic it can be a source of comfort and certainty it kind of gives you a blueprint in a world where you know the universe is silent on our mo on our deepest questions Oh, well said. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Elizabeth. I think that's I think that's powerful. I know that I've gone on that journey and still struggle with it. You know, having sort of left a type of Christianity, I can turn to a Zen Buddhism or even sometimes non-religious ideologies and sort of idealize them or see them with rose-colored glasses because I can, I think, so clearly see some of the issues with a certain type of Christianity that I'm always having to kind of catch myself and say, I think every position probably has its issues and its problems. Nothing's idealistic. Uh, maybe like you said, finding a middle path is maybe the way forward. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, because for instance, um, I think that Byung-Chul Han, well, he's talking about a very specific type of Buddhism, but I still think in a way that, in a way he looks at it um, idealistically. And I'm actually taking a class right now. I'm taking um, a political economy class about capitalism and socialism at my local university. And um, my professor, when he was telling us about our first paper that we would write, which was supposed to be in support of capitalism, regardless of what we, you know, what our actual thoughts are. And he said, you know, make sure that you mention that you're writing it from an idealistic perspective. You're writing about an ideal capitalism, not necessarily one that exists, you know, in history. And I think maybe that's what Byung-Chul Han is doing, because I think he mentions that, you know, Buddhism is nonviolent. And I mean, that's not necessarily true if you look at like the history of countries and people who are identifying as Buddhism, but, you know, in a very non-peaceful kind of conflict. And so... And so, and you know, some people say, well, that violence, whatever it is, it's never a part of the essence of a religion. And so, you know, I think we can have that conversation as well. But I think it's important to, you know, keep in mind that we're either talking about the ideal version or the esoteric version or the essence of a religion, the the sort of initial like intention, or as it has been maybe co-opted and kind of messed up a little bit by human beings because that's what we do. Oh, that is what we do. And oh, I want to just go into so many things. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really resonating with you, Elizabeth. So if, if you don't mind, maybe we can kind of like start our, our conversation. I mean, we're already in it, which is awesome. But just by looking at this interview that he did with El País magazine, and, and maybe I'll start by just saying, when I first started reading Han and, and to this day, I've, I've always been struck by not only his philosophical reflections on otherness and a type of strangeness in our life, but that he himself as, a, as an individual seems to be like an other, just a very strange kind of character. And it, so anytime I'm reading his philosophy or reading about him, I'm just struck by almost a different world that I don't quite understand. I, I don't feel like I live in but is appealing to me at some level. It's, it's encouraging sometimes. It's really challenging in other ways. But yeah, he's definitely a philosopher of otherness for me. And uh, getting to hear a little bit more about his personal life really kind of amplified that in a way that I wasn't expecting. Yeah, I have had the same experience with Hans. Sometimes I'm, I would love him to uh, give us a little more context of where he's coming from because I don't always like see what he sees as a, like a mass phenomenon. But yet at the same time, as you as you said, I I want to, and I kind of. I kind of do. And I'm attracted to maybe his romanticism or nostalgia, you know, like in the disappearance of rituals, he wants to kind of see what he can go, he can take from the ancients, you know, and he's, he has that kind of Heideggerian, like anti-technology kind of thing. And I totally. also wish I could be a Luddite and like eliminate <laughs> noise pollution and light pollution, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I was, I guess I was really struck along those lines of what you were saying of his phrase that he lives life backwards. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that. I wanted to see if if you could kind of reflect on what he means by that. What, what, what did the interviewer mean by this is a philosopher that lives his life backwards? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I completely know. Um, you know, he gave the example of, you know, as he is a Catholic of some sorts, he enters the church when everyone else leaves, or right. he is awake when everyone else is sleeping, and he's sleeping whenever one else is awake. And so it's kind of like an inverse. Maybe I see it. I don't know, as he's striking his own path, like it doesn't, mm -hmm. he's not going to be compelled or comfort or, or coerced or pressured into living life as, as the, as he sees the majority of people doing, he has like a, he has his own, I guess, way of being and philosophy. And I, I think that's wonderful that he has, and I think the interviewer even mentioned this, that he has the ability, like he has the resources, financial material, the time, et cetera, to do that. You know, not everyone can really like have, you know, everyone lives on a continuum of choice, right. And some, people have more choice than others about how to structure our days. Totally. That's so well said. Yeah. That was one thing that I'm still a little bit conflicted about, I guess. Part of it is I'm just confused is when the, when the interviewer was talking about how privileged he is that he's done so well, the, 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 the curiosity in me started thinking, how much does he actually have? You know, what, yeah. what, 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 what level of wealth are we talking about? And then I started thinking, is he coming from a place of tremendous privilege? Is his whole philosophy based on the fact that he's able to experience these things when a lot of people probably aren't? I, yeah. I started kind of wrestling with that component. And I, and I don't know how much he makes or, you know, what his net worth is or anything like that. But I never really thought about him as a kind of a successful philosopher. But I, but I guess he is. Yeah, I... You know, I wonder that too, you know, that's always the question we ask, you know, and probably we're taught to ask in graduate school, you know, where is this author coming from? Like, are they speaking from a place of privilege? And if so, what is accessible in their philosophy and what isn't? But I remember watching um, a documentary that he was a part of, and he was talking with a few other people and saying that we, like the people around the table, have vocations that allow us more leisure. And I think think that, uh, you know, for instance, like the example of an academic, you know, even if, you know, academics don't usually make a lot of money, but we can structure our days. We do have, you know, have choice totally. over our time. Right. And I don't know if he, I don't think he has children and I don't think he's married. And so it those didn't seem like it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, he never mentions it. Like he, he mentioned in the interview, like he goes, back to Korea, to South Korea, to visit his mom. Visit his mom, yeah. Year. Yeah, but otherwise, it just seems like he kind of lives a solitary life. And and I mean, I get that because, uh, like, as an academic, you can choose now, at least after the after. Um, you know, the pandemic to teach, you know, mainly online. And so you decide when your office hours are on campus and you can just kind of structure it that way. But I, I guess there are lots of different um, professions that can do that as well. Like we've talked about this before, right? Like you can uh, schedule yourself, I guess, when you would like. With right, your right. Yeah. I have a lot of freedom. And, and when I see people and everything, no, it's it's a tremendous privilege for sure. I, I, I guess, and, I, and I, I hope I'm not coming across judgmental toward him and, and his situation. It was just kind of a thought that I had that I hadn't really thought about is is he operating kind of at a level of wealth that maybe a lot of philosophers aren't and that that just gives him some freedoms, which I guess isn't 
it's not necessarily wrong, but it maybe helps me think about some of his idealistic statements a little bit with, with a more realistic kind of framing, I guess. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it could be that, you know, he's aware of his privilege and Mm. he just wants to restructure the world so that maybe like in a Marxist turn so that everyone has more free time for like spiritual and psychic development. Sure. Sure. You know, in light of that, I feel like one of the ways that he's a philosopher or even a, a, a human, a man that kind of walks backwards is his decision to not really be involved in social media. His, uh, you know, he there's a statement about him owning a smartphone, which he kind of doesn't like, but he only uses it really to classify his plants in his garden. <laughs> and I yeah. thought, man, how nice would that be? You know, I mean... I'm always torn. Like I I love social media and I love connecting with people like you, you know, across the country and technology is great. And yet, you know, it can create so much suffering in my own life and so much dissatisfaction. And I I just think there's way too much like digital connection nowadays. So that's an aspect of his life that to me seems very idealistic and romantic, but I envy it. Yeah, me too. I mean, if if all of us could just, you know, sometimes like take a vacation away, a true vacation where we're not sure. worried about, you know, work contacting us or, you know, clients contacting us and needing us and things like that. A lot of times I think vacations are impossible for people. I know they've been difficult for me because it just seems, uh, you know, there's a financial burden, you know, and then also you have to take yourself away from work. And if you feel like you can do that without guilt, um, right. oh, that yeah. Tough. yeah, it's hard to do, you know, checking email, you know, checking your work email at 8am is sometimes what you have to do. Right. Yeah. Or yeah, cool. totally. <laughs> yeah. What? But I, I think that a lot of us would like to take, you know, social media breaks, go on like a Buddhist retreat or just a, a social media detox retreat. That should be great. That should be like government sponsored, I think. God, that wouldn't that be nice? I would I would love that. You know, in, in light of some of this too, um, I'm, I'm curious what you thought about this. You know, his his decision to not have like a smartphone that he uses all the time, like on social media, you know, with, with, with everything that's going on in the world now, you know, through how social media presents it, I, I think it's so easy to like pick sides and to feel really good about yourself. If you're like politically pushing one agenda over another, there's a part, there's a, there's a fantasy, I think in me, that's like, man, I wish I was more like him where I could just kind of check out and, and just write and not get involved in these identity based you know, arguments that probably fuel this self-righteousness. But then I'm like, is that even possible? Is that escapism? Is that not being political enough? Those are kind of some of the questions that I have for myself that I don't know how to answer. Right. I mean, I hope that one day he will come on your podcast and you can ask (laughs) him kind of like how he got to where he is. Because in a way, social media is a lot of people's paths to maybe like being a public intellectual and Mm. being able to have, you know, that that cabin in the woods where you can spend, you know, maybe some months writing or whatever. It's uh, it's, you know, to get from where most people are to where he is like 
I think that's a question that I would love to hear you ask him. I'm writing that down. So we can figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, but if, good for if, him. if he ever agrees, yeah. I'm going to have you on with me so you can help oh. me ask really good questions. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. If he's not necessarily on social media, he's not looking at like my hours of commentary on his books on my channel. <laughs> so <laughs> that would be like good or bad, you know, I'm not sure. But That's I'm always hilarious. like on on the chance that he is like ever gonna just randomly listen to five seconds. I'm always trying to say, Han, I really like you. I'm just right. love this part, you know, like right, reassure right. that the relationship is intact. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. No, totally. Now, what what did you think about? And I know we can only just speculate, but just the way he was relating to the interviewers. I mean, it seemed like. He didn't really want to answer questions. He kind of did whatever he wanted. You know, he said, I just want to talk. And he's like, okay, it's time to go eat. I, I, how did you interpret kind of that type of personality? Yeah, I mean, wow. To have that that strong sense of self. I was actually on one of um, the... I don't know what you even call them, the like reels on Instagram. There was this woman who said that, you know, you are not, she was like speaking to her audience and, you know, trying to encourage them. And, and she said, you are not here to match or mirror energy. You're here to transform energy. Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought about that when I read that interview um, because he he doesn't seem like a people pleaser, you know, he oh, the exact seemed, opposite, right? Yeah, right. And so I think a little bit of that, like the middle way, again, a little bit of that is, is good to be really in tune. And, and, you know, I mean, he just seems human. Maybe he's not comfortable when he feels like, cause I, I can imagine that interviews sometimes feel like someone's trying to get something out of you, especially if you're on the level he is of like, a hidden celebrity that, you know, people are admiring. And so maybe he just feels more comfortable when he feels as if he's talking among friends instead of someone's trying to get something out of him, like content. I, you know, I don't know. It's complete speculation, but um, I can imagine that would be one of the difficulties of kind of like having some level of fame. Yeah, no, that's a good, okay. I hadn't thought about it kind of in terms of the fame, but that's a good point. You know, now this is total speculation and it's definitely coming from my bias and my lens. I spend most of my day, five days a week, uh, sitting across from from men who have autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. And I couldn't help but see some of the similarities in the way he, even in the way he dressed. I know that's like a huge stereotype, but just all black and kind of a little bit disheveled. It, what he did with his shoes, right? He talked about having dress shoes that he would kind of step on the back heels to make yeah. them the kind of clogs. A lot of my clients do that. I don't always understand why. Oh, wow. And then the, the the way he interacted with people and just wanted to talk about what, what he was really interested in and kind of didn't seem to have, we can call it not a people-pleasing personality, but he just didn't seem to f- have the need to kind of mirror other people. I was thinking, I wonder if he's neurodivergent. Yeah. I'm not sure, I mean, you know? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that... Uh, 
many people can read his interview and uh, you know assume that everything is is just a choice and really intentional right. but for instance i've read before in um one of his books that he has sleeping issues and so in the interview it kind of sounded like he or this is just my assumption i guess from it that he chose he he's choosing to be awake when other people are asleep because it aligns with his philosophy but like knowing that he has sleep issues, maybe he's just trying to cope with those sleep issues and figure out. That's such a good point that I missed. Know. Yeah. I, I, I obsessed over the type of wine that he drinks <laughs> uh, to help him fall asleep. I actually went to one of our local stores and found it. It was kind of expensive, but I'm actually saving it to like savor it and think about him and his philosophy. <laughs> Oh, I love that. That sounds that sounds so great. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'll have I to let you that. know how it goes. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's a Spanish wine, right? Yeah, it's a Spanish wine. I forget the name of it, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's something I can't look. I can't wait to to really enjoy. But but you're making a good point. I didn't really think about him having kind of maybe sleep issues, maybe a type of insomnia. Maybe yeah. it's connected to to some anxiety. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's easy to kind of idealize him as this kind of like rogue, eccentric philosopher. And I think he is, but maybe some of it is rooted in factors outside of his control that, that maybe he struggles with and just doesn't maybe write about. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a part of the reason that uh, he's so compelling to so many people is because, you know, he, he's like vulnerable a little bit and we know these details and it mm. kind of seems like, you know, he's a real person with his own quirky personality. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as a female, what did you think about the little segment in the, in the magazine kind of interview where he, on the one hand, affirmed the Me Too movement? I think he was reflecting on, I wasn't aware of the situation, but a, a famous like coach that went to kiss a, a female like star soccer star. And, um, he was like really down on that, but then he said, maybe the movement has gone too far. It's almost like a violence against Eros or, or passion. I was curious if you had any thoughts on that. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I had forgotten about that. He did kind of create some nuance there. Um, yeah, I wonder if he is just kind of critiquing the fact that just like maybe religions, political movements can get co-opted and mm. it can kind of become almost a witch hunt with whatever you're talking about and and kind of intermingle with cancel culture. I mean, I can definitely see how any sort of well-intentioned and even necessary movement can kind of on the uh, on the extremes can kind of be potentially problematic. I don't know. It's a it's a really um it's a really bold thing to say, I think, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, it can certainly be, be taken in, in different ways. But, um, you know, I, I guess I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, right? And, like, maybe just keep an open mind with that statement. Sure, sure. You know, and then one of the things I'm thinking about, I don't think it has to be the only factor, but I think about, you know, has he ever been in a romantic relationship or, you know, he sees his mom kind of frequently, uh, doesn't seem like he's close to his brother, but maybe he, there's a line about his sister being a musical composer maybe, but, you know, what is his relationship to females, you know, in, in, in real life? And, and 
has, would, would that shape maybe some of his statements if he was more connected? I, I don't know. I know it's speculation, but that's part of where I was going with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible that it's so hard to, you know, uh, speak about things that, you know, we don't have experiences of. And sure. I know that, I know that men and, and non-binary people and people all across the gender spectrum, you know, um, experience sort of those violations of body and mind. Um, and the Me Too movement has been so empowering because I think for, um, I think for people who have had you know, those experiences, there's just so much shame around them. And so when yeah. you start to hear stories of other people like, oh, it happened to Taylor Swift. And she also froze and didn't say something when she mm. was built up, you know, in public because she was, you know, because we're all more afraid sometimes of making someone else uncomfortable, even if it's someone who is, you know, like abusing us or whatever. Um, and, and there's a very real psychological response to something like that, that just makes you freeze and paralyzes you. And it keeps you totally. from doing what you need to do, which is, you know, shouting like, no, we're running away from the situation. And, and yeah, I mean, for those people who haven't necessarily had to navigate life kind of looking out for that and and trying to avoid it but it being kind of inevitable um yeah it might be hard to like take it more seriously like for instance you know and i know i brought this up before and i don't want this sure. to be like my weird thing but you know even in this book like he talks about when he's comparing buddhism to say um meister eckhart's you know mystic version of god right right he says that that Christian God seems narcissistic. And for someone, so in my life, I have experienced being on the end of um, someone I think probably had narcissistic personality disorder. And I experienced that grooming and that psychological kind of manipulation to like feed sure. their emotional needs. And so I think that I take it personally and I'm very sensitive when he calls like, anything narcissistic because I'm like, no, narcissism is so much worse, you know, mm. but I'm thinking of like the DSM, but, sure. but, you know, he might, maybe he's never been like narcissistic supply. Thank goodness. Not many people have. And so, you know, it's not, we all do that. I think, you yeah. know, we all have to be told that, no, that's going to offend people. And it really does. Um, but it's just hard to wrap your mind around when you haven't embodied that experience. Wow. Yeah, man. I hope you never feel like you talk about that enough. I'm so glad you brought it back up and, and framed it the way you did. It's very powerful and, and it's meaningful to me to hear it from you. So thank you. That's, that's yeah. some really good stuff. Thanks. Thanks. So, yeah. So I try to, I try to recognize that I'm taking it personally. So sure, <laughs> which sure. is probably one of the things that, you know, um, I, I don't know, I'm kind of in the middle of like, allowing people to be free with language, but also to listen to people who maybe have something to say about it. Um, yeah, but, but I know, I know that he just means like self-absorbed. So. Sure, sure. Now, what, what did you think about the, the little segment in the in the interview where I think he even describes himself as a, as a lazy thinker or a lazy person. He only writes about three sentences a day. I just had a hard time believing that. Yeah, I mean, it's so self-deprecating. With all the books that he writes. Yeah, I mean, I'm... <laughs> 
that's what well, yeah that's wild i it's i wild, don't right yeah i don't know i mean maybe he feels like that maybe that's his experience like it's so effortless maybe he just sits down whenever he wants and he just like writes a paragraph or two and then kind of forgets about it and it just seems like the book writes itself i mean that's that's a really lovely place to be if you're in that kind of flow but i know that's not the experience of most writers okay yeah and then okay maybe one last question about the interview unless you have something else and then maybe we can jump into the book uh on zen buddhism but what uh what did you think of his kind of statement around his books where he says, I don't really talk about them. You know, they speak for themselves. Oh, wow. It just, <laughs> all of the statements that you're bringing up just make me feel as if he just, I don't know, is in his own room by himself. <laughs> right. I, mean, I mean, wow. Cause you know, cause we we're talking about him and, and I know a lot of people um, that we've talked to in the past on your show, sort of have referenced his polemical nature. That's and, a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not sure that he seems like aware of that. I don't know. Maybe he just didn't want to want to comment on, you know, what people might think of his books. Um, he's trying to, it seems like he uh, is trying to maybe create some distance between mm. himself and I don't know, maybe his readers, he doesn't go on, uh, you know, interviews a lot. And so, you know, maybe he wants to keep himself private and he, it, it's like maybe like an artist, you don't, you don't want to necessarily put a comment or a label on your book or be too self-aware. You just want to put it out there and more like observe. So sure. I don't know, I'm not published, so I'm not sure <laughs> you know, what, what the desire would be once, once you put something like that out there. Sure. Sure. Okay, so so thank you for kind of answering some of my questions on the interview. I, I'd love to maybe just jump into his book, The Philosophy of Zen Buddhism. For yeah. for anyone who hasn't read it, it's a great it's a great book. It might even be a good place for people to start um, if they're if they're getting into his work. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Yeah, I mean, especially if it's it's great if you're also interested in Buddhism, right? Because then yes. you have you have the philosophical take on it, one interpretation of it, and then you get to right. know a little bit about about this, this Buddhist philosophy. So, yeah. so yeah, I think it's absolutely, absolutely would recommend it. And, and it's great. You know, um, I won't read all the chapters, but he just has these little short chapters with these little titles, a religion with God, without God, emptiness, no one. And I thought maybe we don't have to go through every chapter or every part of it, but I thought maybe we could start with a few of them and just kind of see where we go in terms of the conversation. I'm, I'm really interested in that first chapter of religion without God. Yeah. Can I can I can I start with something and just kind of see where you go? Yeah. With that. Okay. So so Great. what I've been thinking about and a little bit of my background is, you know, I've I've kind of been on my own sort of journey for a long time in terms of God and religion. And um, you know, the the latest iteration was a type of maybe agnosticism, but then I started thinking more about it and just thinking about my own practices in my own life and thinking, I was like, it's probably closer to a type of Christian atheism. But then there was something about atheism that, that didn't quite fit with my experience. And then in, in reading this book and, and a few others that I've been working through, I've, I've really begin, been getting into this one thinker. He was a humanist psychoanalyst, Eric Fromm, who actually wrote a great book on Zen Buddhism that I would really recommend. But he uses the, the concept of non-theism as opposed to atheism. 
Hmm. And then I, I'm, I'm reading a book now by this guy named Raul Moncayo, who's a practicing Zen like monk and a um, Lacanian psychoanalyst. And he says that Zen Buddhism is not theistic or atheistic, but it's non-theistic. And so I guess I wanted to ask you, have you come across that idea of something being non-theistic as opposed to atheistic? Do you see it as a false sort of dichotomy? Is there any resonance for you with that? Do, do you think Han would maybe like that language of non-theism as opposed to atheism? Or, or yeah, where, where, where do you go with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of my questions reading uh, this text. You know, the way he's talking about Zen Buddhism, and maybe it's because there's this assumption that if it's a religion, it's going to have a God or it's going right. to have some kind of divine being that you see as an entity. Um, you know, because I might prefer the word or he, that he used the word spirituality, you know, okay. for this. Um, I mean, Buddhism, I know, you know, because it has different paths and some are like more religious than others. But I, I do really like that distinction between spirituality and religion. Um, I don't know, it gets so complicated, right? But, but I, I will, I will just say to your question, which I am not really, I don't, it doesn't answer it. But um, he, it seems like Han wanted to really emphasize you know, every time he would say Buddhist religion, right? Instead of just Buddhism right. or Buddhist spirituality or Buddhist philosophy, it's like, no, Buddhism is a religion. Zen Buddhism is a religion. And I would really like to know if people who follow Zen Buddhism feel like it is a religion, whether it whether there's a God or God-like being or not. Right, right. You know, one of the things that I've heard, and, and I'm just kind of picking up on, Again, this latest book uh, that I'm reading from Raul Moncayo, who I know can't speak for all Zen Buddhists, but he kind of distinguish, distinguishes, especially in the West, between like a light Buddhism, mm. which I think is probably the way that I probably appropriate it, which is kind of more as like a philosophy, maybe a spirituality, bits and pieces of it, incorporating it within my own kind of system versus kind of a Zen Buddhism that's really rooted in tradition and some of the primary figures and, and, and is very kind of rigorous. It's probably practiced, you know, um, at, at a monastery or, or a temple or something like that. So I wonder if that's one of the distinctions, a type of light Zen Buddhism versus one that's more robust. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it goes back to the question, like, what is a, is a religion? Like, yeah. what are the characteristics of a religion? And I, and I think he just wants to point out that, you know, God isn't always necessary. And I think that that's true. But when I think about what a religion is, you know, a lot of people will look at the etymology of it and say that, you know, it has a tie with, you know, a word that means to bind, right? So, uh, so any sort of philosophy that incorporates the divine and the sacred within community yeah. um, could be called a religion. Um and I've, you know, the Zen Buddhists that I've read, um, I don't know if you've read these, like, um, what's her name? She is a lesbian monk. I can't remember where she lives, but uh, Roshi Pat Yanko O'Hara. Most no, intimate, I haven't. 
a Zen approach to life's challenges. And Ooh. I know she has like, she's the leader of like a community. I think she's in California okay. and you know, there's, there's a communal aspect and there's a leader aspect. Um, but as he, you know, as he said, I think pretty validly, the the side of, the center of Zen Buddhism is like meditation, so not necessarily like worship. And gotcha. I think he was kind of trying to set up in that first chapter that you know, look at these versions of the Christian God. It's a kind of God that created everything in His image and wants to be worshipped. And that was definitely, you know, how it was kind of taught to me, I guess, growing up, Christianity was um, that, you know, God loves your praise, God loves your loyalty. And so I see where he's going. And I don't, and I, I don't know, I wonder, I wonder what you thought about as well, not to divert from your question, because I, I still want to talk about it. But what you thought about in that first chapter, him opening it up with basically a comparison between Christianity and, and Buddhism. Like if you thought that was helpful or not, especially like I know he looked at like Hegel's version of, yeah. of Christianity and God. Uh, that's a great question. You know, if, if I can answer it briefly, um, I mean, I can only say I think it was helpful for me given my own kind of struggles with Christianity. Um I mean, the, the way that he and, and he right, he is a Catholic and, and he's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think he actually knows his theology quite well. And, and I think he's, you know, well versed in like the mystical side of Christianity. He he, he works with uh, Eckhart and I mean, even Hegel, right, has has some of that in there. Um, I, I, I do think the way he kind of was framing, quote unquote, God was not as sophisticated as, as some theologians might want to talk about God. It, it maybe it was a bit of a straw man, but, but, but a straw man mm -hmm. that I would also want to reject. Um, and, and so I started thinking, is he getting into his whole dualistic polemical kind of thing where to highlight his argument to, to make sure that it comes across really powerfully, he has to kind of construct a version of the other side that maybe a lot of people would disagree with. Even though I think I was really in line with what he was saying, I also would want to move away from like a deus ex machina or like a a simplistic God that just pulls the strings and that we just look to for a type of solace. I, I'm actually with him in his argument. I just wonder, did he do full justice to maybe the more apophatic or mystical understanding of God? Yeah, I, I agree completely. I was almost... And, I, you know, I, I wish that I weren't like this, but I almost wanted to, like, fact check. Like, I wanted to go to my Meister Eckhart book. And yeah. like, is this what I really think of? Because I don't know. I think that, I don't know. I'm just hesitant to uh, have anyone demonize mm. another religion. Why do you have to do that if you want to talk about zen buddhism but then again if he didn't bring in like those philosophers and make those contrasts would it be the philosophy of zen buddhism would it just wouldn't it just be another book on zen buddhism so maybe That's he felt point. like he had to do that bringing in philosophers i don't know i just how i i don't know it just it just made me slightly uncomfortable because i felt like you maybe he was like not doing justice Sure, sure. And, and, and at the same time, I know it's tough. Like, 
especially in his short books, he can't do full justice to every nuance, you know, in another tradition. But but yes, I resonate with what you said. I, I wonder, maybe this is a type of bridge into the chapter on on no one, mm. which which to me was like the central element that he highlights about Zen Buddhism, which is really this idea of no self or or you know kind of a, a type of lack of identity or, or, you know, some people talk about it as, as a, as not focusing on like ego, if we're thinking about it in like psychoanalytic terms. And, and I just wonder if he's so, he so sees that as the central aspect that it then bleeds into God, because God, if, if, if there's, if we don't have a self, then God's not going to be a self. Um, that, that, that makes sense within kind of the Zen Buddhist like framework. Right. And, and, you know, how can you have a God when you are practicing non-attachment as right, well? Right. right? Um, yeah. You know, I, I have read in some of my readings about Zen Buddhism, that idea of the no self, you know, that instead of like waking up in the day and being led by your ego and ba uh, basing your interactions with others on your past, interactions with them to kind of, I think Ohara mentions it as walking through as if you had holes in the self and mm. everything just flows in and out and you are very um, present, you know, you were very aware and attentive of the now. And I think Han really wants to emphasize that this is a religion, we can just use his words, um, of eminence. It is not um, it is not a religion of transcendence. It's one where there's a radical acceptance of what is. And I think he's trying to like contrast maybe other religious traditions that are trying to like escape in yeah. some way. But at the same time, isn't Buddhism glad to escape the wheel of samsara and reincarnation, right? Death and birth. Like you want to... I know the bodhisattvas come back to earth, but so they can like help others be enlightened. But ultimately, don't Buddhists want to escape rebirth, you know? And so there is kind of a, a look toward the future and a look toward improving and elevating your soul. Totally, totally. I think that really resonates with me. I, I think this connects to something I wanted to bring up, which was one of the things that I both love about Zen Buddhism that I struggle with the most is actually... This idea of like no self, because I think with my own anxiety and my own like ego and and all the very human parts of me, I, I want a sort of philosophy or a spirituality or religion to sort of call me out on some of that stuff and to help me manage it and for it not to be so extreme. But then I have moments of, man, this just is not very realistic. <laughs> Like we're just, we're just way too human and we have egos and we struggle and, and how, yeah, how realistic is it to actually step into a place where we're saying we don't have a self? It, it just seems almost like a denial of something that's just so central. So I'm, I'm stuck. I, I both love it. And then I also almost recoil against it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, I think personally for me, it can feel so freeing. Like I have to remind myself, I think to like be present, right. And not sure, be me too. in my mind and lead by my, you know, fearful self-consciousness. And then also like in my practices of meditation, um, it feels so good almost. It feels so mm. cleansing to like, maybe just tune into my body and to calm my mind. And it, it almost feels like whatever self I've constructed that can be shelved or to, to meet yeah. people and just try to experience them instead of like project onto them or, you know, try to figure out power dynamics or whatever it is when we do, when, when we meet people, totally. sense, you know, like, I feel like there is a shift in mindset, you know, it's like, it's like a no self mindset that does feel really nice, but I see what you mean, like in trying to find a balance, like sometimes you do need to like tend to the self, like even in like inner child work. Yeah. 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 And I was even thinking too, like, no, I, I'm really in line with what you're saying where I think this was in Byung-Chul Han, or maybe it was another book where it talked about, I mean, if you really push the non-attachment idea and no self, you're going to get to a place where there's not like the deep sadness or it doesn't linger very much, but there's also not tremendous excitement or happiness or, you know, sort of the excess on the positive side. And I don't know that I want to let that go. Right. As, yeah. as, as painful and as excruciating as falling in love has been, I also wouldn't trade it for all the world or, or sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll do something to excess that probably isn't the best, but it was wonderful as well. And so I, I struggle with, I guess, the no self and, and non-attachment in those moments when I'm, I'm drawn to a type of excess. Yeah. You know, I, I, there's this book called, I don't know if you've read it. Um, it's by Don Miguel Ruiz, I think, okay. or Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. Cause I know they both write books called the five levels of attachment. And I've taught mm. this in my classes and it start. it says that the author says that your most authentic self is at zero attachment. And then it goes all the way to like violent zealousness. And my students always respond that 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 your authentic self, if it has to be completely non-attached, sounds so lifeless and robotic. Yeah. And like, you know, like, <laughs> so, so I get that. But, you know, trying to think of the central tenets of Buddhism that one, we're trying to decrease suffering and two we're trying to hold in our minds the middle way i wonder how can we use non-attachment in a way that in a way that is actually helpful to us you yeah. know so not in the extreme where we're trying to have this self-discipline and self-restraint to not feel anything sure. but to when we do uh, feel that we've caused ourselves suffering by our passions or whatever it is, maybe that's when we remember, you know, to like loosen up the attachment a little bit. So because Buddhism is really about practicality, right? It's the, it's the use the raft across the stream, but if you don't need the raft anymore, like lay it down, right? You can yeah. even lay Buddhism down when you feel like you don't need that like concept or word or identity. So, so I really like to give Buddhism the benefit of the doubt and 
Sure. Think of ways that we can like have a balanced understanding of non-attachment and apply it to our lives when it's actually serving us. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Okay. I, I, I like that a lot. And, and maybe this is, I'm just really thinking out loud. This is why I struggle to sort of land in any one tradition. And I think that would, I think that would be critiqued by a lot of people as I'm being wishy-washy, but because I, I don't want to come across as, as just, you know, picking and choosing. But, but if I'm really honest, it's kind of what I do. I, I, I see those elements in Zen Buddhism that I really resonate with as not just a coping strategy, but, but as a real tool to help manage certain things, to help manage excess, to help manage sort of attachment that, that becomes really unhealthy, almost like a type of addiction. But I don't know that I can endorse it to the degree that maybe the tradition does. And and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally align with that too. If people are going to, you know, judge for that, then, then I have to, you know, also <laughs> include myself in that because I feel like my um, spirituality sort of takes or borrows from like the religions of the far east and a little bit of hinduism um and i just kind of you know work with what i'm working with and what helps sure. me. but but yeah if zen buddhism is in fact what han how han you know articulates it as maybe that is a reason that i cannot fully be a buddhist because hmm. if he's saying that there's this radical acceptance and no desire to escape. Um, you know, I just, you know, in my meditations, like I want to connect to my higher self. I want to connect to more enlightened spirits and energies in the universe that can, you know, help me tune into love and gratitude. And so I do want to, and I would call that transcendence. Like I want to mm. transcend the energies of fear and ego that weigh me down and that are self-destructive. So, so, so I don't know. So, yeah, so I can't buy fully into, because I don't know, it almost feels like, and this might be a problem that I have with this book that he's trying to articulate an extreme version of Buddhism, which is mm. just outside of what Buddhism can be because Buddhism is supposed to be like something about, you know, I don't want to keep harping on this, but the middle way. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, and good. Han is just not a philosopher of the middle way. <laughs> so, Wow. It's really there you go. He's not a philosopher topic. the middle way. That's 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 good. <laughs> that's really good, Elizabeth. Yeah. Now, can, can we go here for a minute? Um, connecting the chapters on friendliness, which which I so loved. I mean, mm. I really love that concept in Han and emptiness, which I think what is that? Is that Sunyata? Yeah. In the yeah okay. I so so, so how how do, do you have a way in which you understand both of those concepts and then how they're connected for him? Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I I've seen this idea of friendliness and just made me. Yeah, the, the idea of friendliness in various books of his. Um, there's also the book Absence, right? Yeah, which, which I've read parts of, which is so good. Yeah, and he also talks about friendliness in this one as well. Like, for instance, he gives the example of a greeting, and he looks at the etymology of greeting as connected to grunting. 
you know, uh, the difference between meeting someone and, you know, either wanting something from them, even a response. Like if you greet them and you say, good morning, you want something back, right? Mm. Like you want their attention. You want them to receive your gift and reciprocate. And so he talks about the contrast with that, a more friendly greeting in like different Asian countries um, where there's, there's bowing and there's, there's, even an avoidance of eye contact. And it's just, it's an emptying of self to kind of in a Heideggerian move to allow the other presence to be. To it's, mm. it's reading is, so I'm greeting you and the way I'm greeting you is to kind of empty myself and let you blossom, you know, in that moment. And that's, that's a true greeting. And so, and I think that's, that's how friendliness relates maybe to emptiness and the no self in Han. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think he likes that. So it's a, you know, he, want, he, he says that Buddhism is not a religion of like power over, right. Or authority or, you know, it's just. Which I liked a lot of that. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like I interrupted you. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Okay. I was, you didn't so want to finish this thought. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I don't think there's anything that I can really add. I mean, I, I think I'm right in line with how you understood it. I guess the one thing that I'll say is it's interesting, my own like relational approach, my own biases coming into even the concept of friendliness. I, I think originally I was thinking that it was just a type of like being out in the world and being open to others and hospitable and loving and kind and generous, probably coming from some of my sort of Christian values that are still in there. But I don't think that's what he means at all. Right. Yeah, I don't. Because I think that, you know, that sort of, you know, compassionate or like Christian-like presence almost, we don't have to call it that, but it has to do with, and I don't know if you would agree, but with maybe sacrifice and service. Yes. Yes. And I think even those terms- And love. Yeah. And and love, sure, would, um, would signal to Han ego. And he really wants right. to, right. to be a dying to ego. And um, yeah. And so I don't- so, you know, because he he's talking about emptiness, he's talking about nothingness, um, you know, non-narcissism, no God, groundlessness um, as a way to be peaceful and harmonic. I think he just wants to swing the pendulum. Not even, And I know he's just describing what he sees in Buddhism, but I think his whole work is trying to swing the pendulum back from something that... I don't even know. I was going to say like antagonistic, but then he like wants us to like be confronted by the other. Right, so right. I don't know. I'm trying to like figure it out, but it seems like in how he's talking about Buddhism, seems somewhat in line with his like entire philosophy of how he wants humanity to be. And that's, no, I couldn't agree more. That's kind of why, but I'm glad you added the caveat if someone's especially interested in Buddhism. That's why I said it might be a good place for some people to start. Cause I, cause I think, I think it would have actually been helpful for me to have read this first and then some of his other more like political or works on like technology. I think I would have had a better grasp of where he was coming from. But you, you mentioned, you said two words, peaceful and harmonic, which I love. But I'm thinking, man, when I hear those words apart from Han, I, I probably think about them more in like the Western Christian. I, I keep on saying Christian because that's sort of like that's like my religious kind of uh, not even upbringing, but like early adulthood experience. 
and and I think you know kind of like not just kumbaya but you know it's there's a lot of positive emotion and and there's yeah the self-sacrifice and and peace and harmonic you know things are feeling good and and there's not like violence or or conflict and I think he would endorse a version of that but this very like other vision where there's no selves it's 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 reality existing next to other things and there's a state of just like peace i guess but that's just so foreign i have no way of really understanding what that's actually like and i I realize that's my own limitation and kind of upbringing but i i both love it it seems fascinating this this concept of friendliness everything kind of being open to something else like an emptying of the ego but man i I don't know what that feels like or what that looks like (laughs) yeah i mean you know and and even though you know i just said i'm just going to contradict myself i just said that uh han like this really relates to his other works but you know i guess i have to keep in mind that he's he's not as far as i know he doesn't identify as buddhist right so if you really no, love this he's way, a catholic right yeah he's a catholic and so you know um i think that's just interesting he's upholding you know speaking about Buddhism so positively and Christianity Christianity so like negatively, but then I mean, maybe he should write a book about Catholicism. But if there are no selves, then how can we have Eros? How can we have an encounter with the other? Because isn't the other a self? That's, and, 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 I, and I didn't want to just come across like just playing too much on like logic or reason, but but I was even thinking, I mean, you, you brought up a beautiful example of, and I love the idea of the friendliness and greeting and we're bowing down and emptying ourselves for the sake of the other, but it's for the sake of the other. I mean, you know, are they another, what is another? Is it a self? You know, it, it just gets confusing to me. I don't know how to hold it all together. Yeah. Um, I, I think the only way to not hold it, the only way to like try to hold it together is to, like not go to the extreme because when I okay. think that, cause you might think in a way that if you are constantly in this kind of Buddhist way, as Han is articulating it, always empty, always no self that people are going to feel like they can't get close to you maybe. Mm. Right. Um, but I think that, Buddhists as, you know, a living spirituality and tradition, like wouldn't feel necessarily in their day to day, like they couldn't get close to people or couldn't like experience compassion and love and connection. So, so I don't know. I just think that to understand it, it needs to be a little more dynamic and nuanced and flowing than than Han is is articulating it, you know, because I'm sure, well, I mean, let me ask you, you know, when you read other books about Buddhism, do you feel like you can align with them or accept them a little more than you do with Han's version? Because I do. (laughs) No, no, no. no. How about this? Definitely. Yeah. Like I, I, I see your point and it's there. They tend to be a lot more dynamic. I really love like Thich Nhat Hanh, who I know is not a Zen Buddhist, but but his vision of Buddhism, his yeah. understanding of, of emptiness is like interbeing. And there, there's a, so much that I resonate with. So it seems more relational and dynamic, emphasizing compassion and love, which are really, really important to me. But, I, but I'm also always left with, 
still issues around like the non-attachment, the no self, which again, I, I want to be clear. I actually really like those concepts and I actually use them daily or I try to sort of work on myself and, and become a better person. I, I really do. And yet I just think if they're the only thing we're talking about, if they're maybe taken to the extreme, they just seem so unrealistic to me, so foreign that I don't know what it would actually look like. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should have a Zen Buddhist come on so they can answer right? that. Right? Right? Give us, give us the, you know, the, the how, lived how, experience. No, that's, that's a good, that's a good idea. How about this? I think part of why I'm so drawn to Zen Buddhism is because I struggle so much with some of the things that it's talking about being in my head too much, attaching myself, having too strong a sense of ego and identity and self, that it's a way for me to maybe challenge some of that and in interesting in different ways. I, yeah. I, I don't know that I can fully ever live out the vision, but I see it as like a healthy corrective for some of my tendencies. Yeah, me too. And I wonder if we can make a distinction between like self with a little s and self with like a big capital S, right? So the self that's a little s is like what we need to be in our like practical day to day. It's like, I think of it maybe like Jean-Paul Sartre's in Being in Nothingness, his conceptualization of the waiter, mm. like the waiter's like small lowercase self is the is the self and the ego that maybe we need to be non-attached to because that's just our role who we are how we live but there's but that's never all we are and so maybe the no self is just a no lowercase self but it's a yes uppercase like capital s self i don't know i'm just throwing it out there no, Elizabeth, I think that's beautiful. I think the the Jungian parts of me really resonate with that. Like, the, I, I guess he would might frame it in terms of we have to learn to differentiate ourselves from not just the ego, but our personas, our mm. kind of the, the the social versions of ourselves. But that there is sort of this mysterious uppercase S self that you've been talking about. And then there's some really interesting post Jungians they call them who connect Zen Buddhism to Jungian psychology and talk about the self is actually the no self and, and it's both a thing and not a thing at the same time. And it gets really interesting and, and complicated, but yeah, I really resonate with that. Maybe, maybe that's kind of where I'm at is no little or, or see, but ah, see, but he, I guess I'm too much of a Freudian too, because I'm, I'm thinking the moment that we really think that we're not a lower case S self is the very moment that that lowercase s self is coming out the strongest, probably. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's so true. That's so true. I mean, I wonder if there's a way that we can be like both at the same time or... I'm open to that. You know, I mean, because for, for instance, like we can be who we are and interacting with others, but we can be like a more present version of that. Sure, sure. Right? So... So I don't know. So maybe looking at it like on a continuum or or something, I don't know. I mean, I think it's I probably can't, you know, speak for it any non-attachment 
more for non-attachment more than you can because like there are problems I guess there are reasons as well that I need to self-reflect on that you know I I don't identify as a Buddhist so mm. you know I have been listening to a lot of Taoist meditations um on insight timer I don't know if you know that app I use that app for guided meditations no but I'm gonna check it out insight timer thank you for mm. that yeah, it has a free version and then it has like a subscription, but the free okay. version is great. And I've been listening to this these Taoist meditations by someone named Dr. Deborah Ford. And mm. she talks about like the the Tao energies and like the Tai Chi energy of balance and like wind energy and thunder energy. And and so I don't know, like when I think about her version of Taoism, it seems very much going back and forth between okay. like the collective self or no self and then like healing the the lowercase self. Right, and, right, right. Yeah. So it seems so that. So I don't know. I mean, with religion, there's so many ways to to interpret it. But, but yeah, I get you like the like an extreme non-attachment is really hard to digest, I think, for many people. Sure, sure. Oh, okay. So I know Elizabeth. I probably should jump off. I have something I have to go to, but I just just want to thank you so much for your time and your brilliant thoughts and 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 this conversation. I guess before we do sign off, is there anything else you would want to share as as we come to a close? Um, no, not really. Just that Han is a great person to to grapple with. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, 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 and I think if anyone reads it, they'll probably find lots of things that they resonate with and lots of things they don't like. But I think it um, is a great way to have fruitful conversations with people in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see what um, Stephen Nepper thinks about this book, if he's read it. Yeah, right. I, I, I actually reached out. I, I think he I think he did. And he really liked it. And he said, I can't wait for there to be a podcast episode about it. So we'll have to share it with him. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe we could we could do absence together. You know, there's another Buddhist. I because I, I think well, maybe it's not all Buddha Buddhism. It's it's just Far Eastern thought. But but he includes like Zen in it. So I don't know. It's a, it's up to you. You've had some great um, people on. So I just I guess the last thing I want to say is great job your podcast. I think I hope that it continues reaching more people because thank you great conversations, such interesting topics. Thank you, Elizabeth. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, until next time. Okay. Until next time, continue the conversation, as you say. Thank you.